treat for me. Uh, for the last uh, 15 years since I've been here at Trinity, uh, Chuck Frank has been leading, in some capacity, the men's ministry. And when I first started coming here, the men's ministry was very small. It was me and Chuck. And, <laughs> and we would meet in the morning, and uh, uh, it, it, was, it was a fabulous time. And one of the things that I recognized very quickly is that Chuck has a profound understanding, particularly of the Old Testament, and he has a way of conveying uh, God's word, I think particularly well for men. He has a way of making it applicable to real life situations and he really played an instrumental role in my life uh, during those years and of course the men's ministry has grown and for those of you that attend on Tuesday nights uh, you know that that you're in for a treat today and so I'm so excited for Chuck. Uh, Chuck told me that it's been 20 years since he has preached a sermon and I told him wow I usually only have two weeks to prepare at the most. I can't, I can't wait to hear what you're going to bring to us. You know, so uh, no pressure, Chuck. Uh, I know it's going to be wonderful, uh, but uh, let's stay tuned now for uh, the Lord's word, and then you'll be, you'll have the chance to hear Chuck personally. David asked. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. The word of the Lord. Well, James gave me that florid send up about the men's ministry, and it's true. Sometimes gave that lesson to just him, sometimes just me. But the men's ministry really happened because of three Daves, a Tony, and a Joe. Okay, that's how the men's ministry happened. Because I was like, oh, we'll do this in the morning. People will come in the morning before work. Yeah, no, nobody's doing that. Right? So they switched it to the evening, and all of a sudden, people started showing up. All kinds of people. So it's a very diverse group, and it's a lot of fun. So it's right, 20 years. And you know what? 20 years ago when I preached, I start every single sermon the same way. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Good morning. Thank you. Okay, now I know I'm back on track. So our topic today is hiding from God. Hiding from God. And when I started thinking about this topic, it sent me way back in my life to a time when I was 10 years old. And my parents bought this big old house in Wyoming, Ohio. Four-bedroom house, had three big bedrooms and one tiny little bedroom. Right? So they bring us by this house, my sister, myself, and they run in, and we're running around the house, and it's all empty, and they go, go pick your bedrooms. So we run upstairs, and my parents already grabbed the master with the ensuite bath, right? Nice. 
My sister snags the front bedroom with all the windows and the people left lace curtains, and I didn't want that anyway. And so I'm stuck looking at this lime green bedroom, and I'm like, I don't want a lime green bedroom. They said there was another one. Where is it? So I walk up to this door, and I go, oh, yeah, this must be the little bedroom. And there's a little plaque on the door, and it says, Captain's Quarters. And so I open the door, and I walk in, and this is the kid's room of life, right? I mean, it was a walk-in closet, like a seasonal storage closet with a window in it. But some previous owner took it and customized the whole thing like a captain's bunk. And so I look at the left, and there's this big platform bed, and there's a backrest, and you pull it out, and you can throw all your bedding in, so no more making the bed. And at the foot of the bed, right, there's bookshelves, and then there's an L-shaped desk built in, and on the wall there is this huge nautical map of the world. And I'm like, wow, this is so my room, right? And so... A couple days later, we're moving in, and everybody's setting up their bedrooms, and I'm in my bedroom, and underneath the captain's bunk are three huge drawers on rollers. And I'm like, no folding, no dresser. I'm jamming everything in these three drawers, and this is just perfect for me. And I inadvertently pulled the middle drawer out, and there's a space back in there. I go, what the heck is that? And I look back in. It's deep in there, and it's dark. So everybody's packing and doing all that, unpacking and doing that stuff. And I go and get a flashlight and I go back in there. And I get my body all the way back in there. And it's carpeted back in there. There's no spiders. There's no, like, mouse stuff. It's all good back there. And I think, wow. I grab the drawer and I pull it back in. And I lay there with the flashlight. And I'm like, I have found. Nobody is ever going to think to look for me in here. And so I go back out. I don't say anything to everyone, but I'm walking around with this, like, superiority thing, right? Because I feel like I have some control now in my life. I may be 10, but you know what? I'm not planning on any trouble, but if there is trouble, they're going to find me, and nobody's going to find me, right? Because I'm in my hideout. So now I have to test it. So it's like a week later, it's a Saturday morning, and my mom is stripping beds. I'm coming up the steps, and she sees me, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to get caught in that job. So I go in the room, and I close the door kind of hard and go back in my hideout. Sure enough, two minutes later, Chuck! Chuck, come in here. I want you to carry this laundry down to the basement. Chuck! Sure enough, marching over to that door, opens it. I'm under the bed listening. Doggone it, I know he came in here. Gave it up. Walked around, Chuck! I'm like, this is so perfect. This is absolutely perfect, right? So then I decided to really mess with her. I get back out, get on my bed, open a comic book. She comes back up the steps yelling, looks in the door. I was just in here. I was here reading a comic. She gave it up. She goes, well, I want you to help me. She gave it up, right? That's a lesson to you parents, right? Don't get played. So, yeah, so now I need a real test for this thing. So it's about three weeks later. I'm in some beef with my little sister, right? She did something to make me mad. And I come home. I'm the only one in the house. So you know what that means. It's revenge time. And so I go up to my sister's room, and there it is. 
underneath the window in the middle of the room, the Barbie house, right? And I walk up to them, and they're all there, all dressed up and smug, like, you know, we're Tribeca Chardonnay, you know, chiffon dress. I'm like, <laughs> that's so over. It's over right now. Watch this. And I take all their heads off, right? <laughs> And then I put Ken's head on Barbie and Barbie's head on Ken and some guy's head on Midge. And then I'm looking at him like, so cool now, right? You're all there so cool at the party. Wait. I go in my hideout. A couple minutes later, I hear the door slam. Who's it going to be? I hear the fridge door close. I know it's my sister. Up the steps, I hear her doorknob go. One, two, three. Ah! Right? Screams her head off. Then my mom's in the kitchen saying, Kathy, what's going on? She runs upstairs. I hear her go in the room. Oh, this is just too much. Chuck, chuck. Right? Can't find me. Can't find me. I'm in my hideout. Right? Only in my 10-year-old brain, I didn't think it through so well. Right? That was all the fun part. The revenge and the hideout and I can't stay here forever. Right? I got to come out at some point. And who knew they were going to employ this Sherlock Holmes algorithm on me? Like, okay, there's four people that live in the house where this happened. One is the mother. No, she's really ticked off. It couldn't be her. There's the father. He's away on business. There's the daughter. No, she's the victim in this. There's the son, and he's mysteriously absent. <laughs> yeah, well... That didn't work out well for me because I had to come out, and that day was terrible. And then my dad came home two days later, and that day was really terrible, right? So I have these so I won't digress into the weeds and never come back out. So I got in trouble, but I didn't give up my hideout. So how about you? I know you have a hideout, right? I know you have a place where you go to hide from God. You know why I know that? Because we're all born-again, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians, and we have a problem with this, our flesh, right? Because our flesh is the point at which we experience pain and pleasure. And because of our flesh, we sin. So... Let's take a look at that, and let's start by taking a look at a promise from God, okay? God didn't have to make us promises, but he does. Jeremiah 29, 11. Don't look at it. I'm going to pound you with it all morning. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now think about that. That's a declarative promise from God. I have a plan for you, declares the Lord. A plan to prosper you, not to harm you. A plan to give you a hope and a future. And you know what? We don't trust your plan. trust God's plan. And you know why? Because of pain. Because we have pain. And we don't like pain. 
And we don't like it when the people near to us that we love and care about experience pain. And so we pray to God to please take the pain away. And when he doesn't do that, we don't trust him. And we don't trust his plan. And so we make a decision to supplement his plan. And that's when we sin. Okay? And our sin is not unique. It's unique to us, but it's not unique. So let's unpack that a little bit. It's a little confusing. Today, after this is all over, I can go out and I can buy five cupcakes. I'm talking about major cupcakes. Cupcakes with all the stuff on them, all the stuff in them, right? get me excited thinking about it. So I can take those five cupcakes and I can eat them all in one sitting. And that would not be a sin. It'd be stupid for me to do it, but it would not be a sin. And somebody else can take those cupcakes and they can go home from this service and they can be in a lot of emotional pain. And they can feel like they're totally alone. And they are crying out to God, I don't trust your plan. I've been asking you, I've been telling you how much I'm hurting. And I'm asking you to help me and you're not helping me. And so I don't trust your plan anymore. And I'm going to intervene, okay, because I need something that's going to alleviate this pain. And so those cupcakes become a hideout sin, okay? Not a sin if I eat those cupcakes because I'm not hiding from God. But somebody else can take that and it becomes that hideout sin. So let's take a look and see where this whole business of hiding from God started. Okay? We're going to turn to, I said we, you don't have to turn to this uh, unless you want to. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, has God really said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, or you will surely die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, well, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, well, she took the fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. 
And so they took fig leaves and sewed them together as coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid. Adam and his wife hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, there we have it. Hiding from God 1.0, right? You think Adam and Eve invented that? No. Adam and Eve were rubes. They were too green. They did not know their locality, okay? So we can't look to them for great technique, okay? Do you think it's great technique if you're going to hide from God to say, I know where we should hide. Let's hide in his garden where he hangs out. No, that's not a good plan, okay? You and I have our hideouts, and we have better plans than that, right? So we need to find somebody who's got some street smarts, right? Somebody with a more sophisticated plan. Somebody, you know, Jonah. Jonah is my guy. I totally relate to Jonah. Jonah's like, you want me to what? No way. I hate those people. I don't care what you do to those people. You got a plan to destroy them? You know what? Do it factor 12, right? Turn the heat up all the way. High fry. I don't care what you do to those people. I don't care about them. But when I sin, dear God, please be compassionate with me. Please be forgiving. And whatever recompenses do, please make it minor and not painful and not costly, right? That's the rub. I hate them, and I hate them, and I want justice for them. But please, with me, God, couldn't we just kind of make this a small bump, right? And I promise I'll never do it again. And we can't keep that promise, and that's the hard thing about being a Christian. So, better technique from Jonah. But can we have the next slide? Because Jeremiah gave us this great message in the first chapter. For I know the plan I have for you, declares the Lord, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you a hope and a future. And two chapters later, we get this message from God through Jeremiah. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, may he return to her again? Would not the land be greatly polluted? Is this about divorce? No. Is this about environmental pollution? No. It's about you and me. It's written for Israel, but trust me, it's about you and me. And you know how I know? The last two lines. Whoops. But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet, return to me, says the Lord. You've played the harlot with many lovers. I don't know about you. I've never been a prostitute. I bet none of you have been a prostitute. So what is he talking about? I think he's talking about hideout sin. Remember, it's not unique, but it's unique to us. That means that we can take almost anything 
and make it a hideout sin. So what are we going to do? I don't trust your plan, God. You know what? I'm going to make work my hideout sin. I'm in New York City. I work 90 hours a week, and then I'll play golf all weekend because that brings in more clients, and nobody can touch me. Nobody can say anything but, wow, what a provider that guy is. And I'm not tending to any of the things that God puts on my plate on a daily basis. Right? So if I can make work a sin, then I can make sex a sin. And I can make exercise a sin. And I can make eating a sin. And I can make pills and porno and booze and church. Yeah, that's right. I can make church a hideout sin. Because I'm so busy doing all the good things in the church. that I'm not taking care of the things that God put on my plate. And he knows. And somebody close to me knows. But I'm untouchable because the optics are too good. So... Let's take a look at Jonah because I know Jonah's got better technique than Adam and Eve. So we're going to read from Jonah. That cupcake thing, I never should have done it. All right. Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Arise. What a nice word, right? What does that mean? Arise. Where was Jonah if God has to say, arise? Where was he? Sleeping, that's right. Is sleeping a sin? No. You could have a hard week and say, Friday night, I'm going to bed at 8 o'clock. I'm going to sleep at least 10, 11 hours, and I'll wake up restored, refreshed, and I'm on the case again. That's not a sin. Somebody else will come home Friday night, Sin is their, sleep is their hideout sin, right? I'm going to bed. I'm not getting out of my pajamas until Monday morning. I might make two trips to the fridge, maybe one trip somewhere else, but I'm hiding out from everything, right? So I don't believe God said, arise. I think he said, get up, Jonah. I have a job for you. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell them that the stench of their sin has risen up to the heavens and filled my nose. And I want you to tell them that they don't change their ways. I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah says, hmm, Nineveh, yeah, I'll go there and deliver that message. And they'll flay me. No thanks. He's gone, right? Gone like a shot out of his bed. So let's see where we are. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, hiding from God, right? So from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We know we have the right guy. He's hiding from God. And this is advanced technique. A cruise. Jonah chose a cruise as his hideout sin. Now, is going on a cruise a sin? No, it isn't. But for Jonah, it's a sin, right? And he does what we all do with our sin. We get it all packaged and all inclusive and all nice, and we think nobody can see it. And then in order for that to work, we have to modify God, right? Because he can't see it either. So Jonah turns God into the aerial America God. 
seen Ariel America? And here we are passing over the ancient port of Joppa. It's a natural port, and it was important to the trade routes, and I'm looking for Jonah. There's three merchant ships there, and I don't see him on any deck. Oh, shucks. I know he wouldn't go down in one of those nasty, vermin-infested holds and hide out, so I guess he's not here. Darn it! Yeah, that's God, right? How stupid is that? And yet we all do it with our sin. Right? So Jonah's down in the hold. He's taking a cruise. I'm very optimistic that this is going to work out well. So let's see. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. That could be a coincidence, right? I mean, we don't want to assume anything. So then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. To lighten the load. But Jonah, gotta love the guy, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Is sin asleep? Uh, is sleep a sin? No. Is this sleep a sin? Yeah, it is. Does this story remind you of any other story about a terrible tempest and Guy's in a boat, and the main character's sound asleep. Right? Jesus and the disciples. Right? Only Jesus owned the storm. And he was going to use that storm to teach them about faith and about trust and about obedience. And that's going to happen here too, but in a very complicated way. Because this boat is full of crazy People who believe in all kinds of different gods and a recalcitrant believer down in the hold. So let's see what happens. Then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw all the cargo. I read that already. So the captain came down and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise. You think he said arise? No, he didn't say arise. We're six verses into this and Jonah's been yelled at twice for the sin of trying to hide from his responsibility and sleep. So I know what the captain said. Get out of bed and get up there and cry to your God, right? So we'll play it the nice way. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us draw lots, right? So they take a stick. And they break it up into pieces, and they stack it in their hand. They go around. Everyone pulls a piece of the stick. And guess who got the short stick? Jonah. Another coincidence, right? So Jonah draws the short stick. So they say, where are we? So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Sounds like speed dating, right? Yeah. And it is speed dating because the ship's going down and they want to know what the heck is going on. And here's the craziest part of the whole thing. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. What the heck is that? We're all hanging out on the boat before it takes off. Yeah, what are you doing here? No, I just signed on to the crew. I want to go to Tarshish for a weekend or so. I don't know. I'm hanging out. How about you? Oh, you know, God woke me up this morning and told me to go to Nineveh. I'm not doing it, so I'm hiding out from him. Oh, yeah? You're here hiding out from God, huh? Right. Okay. Have good luck with that. Right? So he's told them this. I don't even understand it. Okay? And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, this is complicated, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will be calm for you. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will be calm. And you know what they did? They did exactly what we do. When the house is on fire and we're going, oh no, we're going to perish. And God, please save us. Tell us what to do. And God almost all the time will say, well, here's your option. Put A into B and then wait on me. Right? Put A into B and then wait on me. Well... That's not active enough for us. It's not active enough for them. And so what do they do? Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord. No more multiple gods, right? These guys are being evangelized by this whole situation. O Lord, please do not perish us for this man's life. What's this sound like? One's got to die so everybody else can be saved. Keep reinforcing these teachable moments, right? And do not charge us with the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him in the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Here's the best part. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So think about this. Nobody would ever write a story like this. I'm God. I want to deliver a message to Nineveh because the stench of their sin has become too much. And so I'm going to pick a recalcitrant believer who's doing his hideout sin in bed, and I'm going to tell him exactly what I want him to do, and he's going to book and try to hide from me. So then I'm going to catch him on that ship, and I'm going to create a tempest. And that tempest is going to make all those crazy multiple God worshipers who work the ship Come to me. Believe in me, the Hebrew monotheistic God, the only God of the world. And they're going to throw Jonah in the water. And if we read it further, there'd be a miraculous saving of Jonah and a miraculous saving of Nineveh. And all of it is extremely complicated. I mean, it's like supercomputer complicated when you think about the probabilities. I mean... It's like God. So what about Mephibosheth, right? 
That's the whole reason I'm here. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 4.4 and see what the deal is with Mephibosheth. 4.4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. So Saul is King Saul. His eldest, the heir to the throne, is Jonathan. And Jonathan has this kid who's lame, right? He's the grandson of King Saul. So he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What's the news from Jezreel? Well, if you're this young kid, it's the worst thing that could happen. Your grandfather, the king, and your dad, the next king, killed together on the same day. So what happens? find my place I could tell you and his nurse took him up and fled and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame his name was Mephibosheth now what's all that panic about well the nurse knew the conventional wisdom of the day in this culture and when you have regime change the new regime wipes out everybody related or associated with the old regime so you don't have to worry about rivals. No looking over your shoulder. So the nurse did exactly what was right as a probably a heathen and somebody who was saving her own neck. She grabbed Mephibosheth. They tumbled in their panic. He broke up his feet and ankles and was crippled for life. And she took him way out into the countryside and stuck him in the house of Makur. So he's in the back room on a mat for decades. And what's he doing? He's hiding out from God, and he's hiding out from God's anointed king. And so every day in his life, he's laying there thinking about what could have been and what his life was like growing up in a palace, the grandson of the king, having his own personal nurse, everybody waiting on him, and now... Every single day he waits in the heat and the dark and jumps every time there's a noise outside or men talking and he thinks it's definitely the soldiers of the king and they're going to come in here and if I'm lucky, they're going to run a sword through me and kill me. And if I'm not lucky, they're going to take me back to the palace and I'm going to become a humiliating entertainment and eventually it'll be a long, painful death. What kind of life is that? Hiding out from God. So now we go to 2 Samuel 9, which was read already, but I'm going to break it up and reinforce it. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. And then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in both feet. Wow. What is this thing David is talking about? May I still show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Well, Jonathan 
He's like the supermodel for us of faith and trust and obey. He was raised as a prince. He was destined to be the king of Israel, right? And then that all changed because Saul made God angry because God will wait and he'll be patient. But if we continue to be rebellious, then the bill comes due. So God said, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. And Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's house and I want you to line the boys up and I'll show you which one I want to be king. So Jesse lines them all out. He goes down, down, down the line. He goes, must be something wrong with the work order here. None of these guys are the one. Are you sure you don't have another son? And Jesse goes, well, you know, I slept with this prostitute and got a kid out of the deal. And so we don't allow him in the house and we keep him out in the field tending the sheep and we bring him scraps. And yeah, we'll bring him here. I want to see him. So they bring this ruddy little kid in rags and Samuel looks at him and goes, yeah, that's God's anointed king of Israel. And he anoints him and says, yeah, good luck with that, Jesse. So Jonathan, destined to be king, now is looking at God's plan in the face. The plan has changed, Jonathan. You're not going to be king. You know what Jonathan does? He trusts God. And he says, not only am I going to trust, but I'm going to be obedient. And I'm going to help this kid. And I'm going to help him to ascend to the throne. And so Jonathan risks his life bringing intel to David that saves his life over and over again. So much so that King Saul gets angry with his son and tries to kill him. And Jonathan keeps doing it. And finally, David is overwhelmed by this love and devotion and obedience to God. And he goes, I don't even understand how you do what you do and what can I ever do to repay you? And Jonathan says, when you ascend to your throne, please watch over my family. And so, in verse 4, so the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth thought, this is it. It's going to be horrible, and here it comes. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you will eat at my table forever as one of the king's sons. Beyond. Absolutely beyond Mephibosheth's wildest dreams. For decades, he sat and waited in fear, sure that every day was going to be his end. And what was waiting for him on the horizon? This whole idea of hiding from God and hiding from God's anointed king locked him out from all this tremendous blessing. And you know what? Mephibosheth is us. Mephibosheth is you and me. Because when we decide that we don't trust God's plan anymore, 
and that we need to supplement that plan and step in and take care of our pain, what happens is we begin to forget the promises of God, promises to prosper us and give us a hope and a future. And when we forget those promises, we miss out on the incredible blessings that he has planned for us. Let's not do that.